The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. How's that lead story in EWN? So Tabo Bester's lawyer, the guy who's representing him, has now been charged with assault and attempted rape. And he's being uh, represented by an advocate who's also facing charges, which is pretty astonishing when you have uh, the story. There's always a twist and a turn in the tale of Tabo Bester. It's, uh, it's the story that just never, never ends. There's always something. So now the lawyer representing him has uh, had to appear in court because he too is facing criminal charges. Uh, also in EWN, you would have heard that uh, report uh, out of the Western Cape about flooding. I've seen some of the videos coming out of Stellenbosch and the flooding situation there. So for our Cape Town listeners, if you've experienced uh, that, I think 60 millimeters of rain overnight. Uh, so let me know what, what that uh, experience has been like, if there are any areas that we should be concerned about as well. Send me a WhatsApp voice note, 072-702-1702, 072-567-1567. You can tweet me at Mandy Wiener. In Gauteng, the police commissioner, Lieutenant General Elias Amawela, has released the fourth quarter crime statistics for 2022-2023. So that is the period of January to March this year. And shock horror, the numbers are up. The overall crime percentage has gone up. So uh, crime has increased by 2,129 counts in the fourth quarter compared to the same quarter last year. Uh, Moela saying there was a slight reduction in robberies with aggravating circumstances. More people, however, being robbed through online shopping and e-hailing services. Murder incidents involving multiple people have caused the murder rate to increase. Gomoto Modise, EWN reporter, following that briefing for us. Gomoto, take us through some of the stats for Q4 and what they're telling us in Gauteng. Before I can uh, just answer that, uh, there's just a bit of a sound there in the back and I couldn't hear your question. Can you just repeat it for me, please? No problem. There's a technical error on our side. So, Komoto, uh, if you can just take us through some of those stats released by Elias Mawela. What picture do they paint? That's much better, Mandy. Yeah, so um, it's that uh, 2% increase in overall crime. That's uh, uh, to over 2,100 more counts of uh Crime, really, of various crimes in um, the province. And, you know, we heard from the Lieutenant General, uh, Elias Mawela, about how, while he understands that the increase is concerning, he says there have been key crimes that have uh, recorded a significant decrease. However, I do have the stats before me here, and do up, you know, it's very difficult to ignore the lies that are highlighted in, in red, Mandy, especially because many of those crimes are violent crimes. You see, crimes like murder where they've recorded a 10.9% increase. That means 153 more people were murdered between January and March this year compared to the same period last year. But I think an even more interesting one for me is the cash and transfer robbery. We haven't been seeing a lot of reporting around these uh, lately, and it has been, you know, seeming like there's been a decrease actually in them because we're not seeing them anywhere. But these stats actually show an increase. 27 cash and transfer robberies reported in uh, between January and March. That's five more than in the same period last year. And, of course, I think what's another interesting one is um, while the sexual assaults have actually gone down by 15%, that means 84 less or fewer uh, sexual assault cases have been reported, attempted sexual offenses are up, and they're up by 18 so that means in this period, we reported 82 uh, 
uh, attempted sexual assault. And so, um, you know, while it's, I think it's really bittersweet when you read these crime stats, because there are some good parts of it. Like how we haven't reported a bank robbery, Mandy, uh, since 2019, not a single one in the province. Um, however, many of those violent crimes are truly worrying. Khamoto, thank you very much. Khamoto Modise, EWN reporter, taking us through some of those statistics released by the Gauteng Police Commissioner, Lieutenant General Elias Mawera. How interesting, there hasn't been a bank robbery in Gauteng since 2019. But if you look at those stats, as she said, so many of those numbers in red around violent crimes, around murders. And a lot of focus often goes on the forensics and how good our forensic systems are in South Africa. Well, The third DNA Forensic Symposium is underway in Cape Town this week. It's a three-day conference. Uh, It's hosted by DNA for Africa, for the UNODC and the ICRC, and it brings together African and international forensic experts. So a really good insight into how we stack up and and what's being done in terms of forensics in South Africa. Dr. Vanessa Lynch is the Director for DNA for Africa. Dr. Lynch, thank you so much for making time to speak to us. I know the conference is is still underway. Um, We've been hearing from you've been hearing from the police from forensic experts when you you look at crime stats that are released like those that we've seen today how important is it that we we make sure that our forensic systems are as good as they possibly can be hi mandy thanks um yes tuning in from the event um yeah, I mean, the crime stats, we're speaking specifically about forensic DNA here, and, and um, unfortunately, you know, DNA can't be used. It's not the panacea for everything. Um, but what we are seeing is that through collaboration, through acknowledgement of where the challenges are and what to do about it, uh, we can do better. And I think that's, that's what we like to hear. I think a system that's paralyzed, which we saw specifically with the DNA backlog, is not a good place to, see, to, to be. Whereas now we really see that there is momentum. There's a recognition that um, different methodologies, holistic approaches to crime are much more useful. Sharing best practices is much more useful than being isolated and not sharing information. So this is a positive thing, and there's so much expertise in Africa and a really good energy here. Um, you know, the SAPs don't normally participate in these events. They're not normally as transparent as they've been. So I, I'm, I'm taking a lot of positives from this event. Yeah, I did notice on, on social media, I've been following your, your updates about the uh, symposium, and there does seem to be good engagement from the police. Um, and and we, we talk a lot about public-private partnerships. Is there a sense from, from the SAPs that there, there is great opportunity in collaboration with the private sector, with academia as well, to make sure that we, we do bolster our capacity? A hundred percent. I mean, you, you, you've hit the nail on the head. And uh, the, the National DNA Database Manager, Brigadier Joe Smith, ended his presentation with that sentiment exactly, that we need to engage with, you know, private partnerships, with NGOs, with victim advocates. Um, we, we can't do this alone. And everybody really wants the same thing. We may have different approaches. We may not do things the same way. But at the end of the day, we want to do better. We want to see this work. And therefore, collaborative practices are very important. And regionally, too, you know, we can't just be working in isolation. Um, A lot of countries are starting to work together. There's a lot of migration, climate change, et cetera, crime, crossing borders. So we need to look beyond just, um, you know, beyond our borders and see where these regional collaborations will also be able to assist us. And just lastly, have there been any key takeaways for you? Uh, anything that, 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 that has really stood out in terms of embracing technology or how we are doing things that the public should be interested in? 
Well, you know, we've got an online audience too, from which is global, and I have been inundated with feedback that just says they cannot believe the level of expertise that we have in Africa. And this is something I've been pushing for a while. We work under very limited conditions with limited resources, but our casework is, as you know, is, is off the charts. So our experience in terms of forensic sciences is, is really good. So the, the expertise that has been presented here from all over Africa, Ghana, Mauritius, Zimbabwe, Zambia, I mean, I think there are over 40 countries that are represented, has really been exceptional. And we need to step in and be recognized globally for what we actually can add to the conversation. So that's my key takeaway. Let's step in, let's stand up, be counted, let's put Africa on the map and really progress and advance um, together. Dr. Vanessa Lynch, thank you so much uh, for speaking to us about this, Director for DNA for Africa. Isn't that a positive conversation, something positive to take away when you hear those crime statistics uh, and uh, you heard Komotso speaking about how many of them were in red. Uh, but when you, you hear about what's being done in South Africa in terms of, of that uh, uh, forensic capability and the cooperation between the police and the private sector as well, we do try and always make sure we balance uh, our reporting on this. So the third DNA Forensic Symposium underway in Cape Town and uh, the world's experts uh, are in Cape Town to discuss this. We're learning from them, we're collaborating, we're sharing information and we, we really do need it with our, our high crime rate. We need to make sure that we uh, are as capable as we possibly can be. The Midday Report. So I'm busy watching the memorial service for Tina Jumat-Peterson taking place uh, in the Northern Cape in Kimberley, being led by the ANC in the Northern Cape, her family there, um, and various comrades and colleagues paying tribute to her, lighting a candle as well. We'll listen in in a second. All of this playing out against the, the backdrop and the context of the claims being made by the suspended public protector, Busisiwe Mkwebane, yesterday at the press conference. I watched the whole thing from beginning to end. Um, it was really really interesting. I listened to her on Clement Magnetella's show earlier today as well on 702 and she has made public these WhatsApp messages, the audio recordings um, which are allegedly of Tina Jumat-Peterson seeking to extort money from her husband David Skorsana and ostensibly doing this on behalf of Pemi Majudina, the ANC Chief Whip and the Impeachment Inquiry Chairperson Richard Dianti. So let's first have a listen to a part of that interview that did today with Clement Maniatella. Have a listen. When you mentioned Tina Jumet Peterson, you indicated that you know the executive, the legislature, the judiciary, had they complied with their constitutional obligations, Tina Jumet Peterson would still be alive today. And and I want to understand why you decided to frame it in that manner. Because to me it sounded like, oh, it, it sounds like you're using her death for your own, um, you know, political interests. Yes, I'm not saying, suggesting here that you need to praise as if she is beyond reproach. I mean, if this audio is indeed, and the hawks are going to tell us, but from what we're hearing, it is here in the audio, and she deserves to be um, condemned for soliciting a bribe. But to stand up there and say this person could still be alive, you suggested to many of us that you know why she died. Do you know why she died? How she died? Um, You are wrong by saying I suggested to most of you. My address yesterday, according to the statement, is that the speculated cause of death wouldn't be there if 
um, all these institutions were effective and acted speedily according to their constitutional obligations. She wouldn't have approached my husband and uh, requested that bribe to make this process to uh, be stopped. So the very fact that all these factors contributed to her approaching my husband and at the end of the day, we are now faced with this kind of uh, a situation. And again, may her soul rest in peace. Indeed, uh, she came forward, unfortunately. Uh, she's the one who approached my husband. And, um, you know, we wouldn't be here, uh, actually, if she didn't do that. So, and she would still be alive. How would she still be alive? Because, I mean, she was healthy. She was fine. She managed to even address parliament a, 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 a day before, or in fact, two, three days before. Worse as well, your daily maverick coming and say after a long illness and all those. Yes, it was, it was her time. Yeah. But unfortunately, immediately when the matter was reported, immediately when... Um, there was an issue of the WhatsApp messages mm. immediately when also it was very clear that they are written. Then um, all of a sudden, uh, she is no more. Plenty of innuendo there from Busisiwe Mkubane speaking to Clement Magnetella earlier today. Well, four members of Parliament's Joint Ethics Committee, uh, who include EFF leader Julius Malema, have been recused from the probe into Busisiwe Mkubane's bribery complaints. Let's find out about this. Babalo Ndenze, EWN parliamentary reporter. Babalo, good afternoon to you. Uh, Tell us about uh, what's happening on this ethics committee as they look into these bribery complaints. Uh, yes, indeed, Mandy. The Ethics Committee met and they received a briefing from the Acting Registrar of Members' Interests. Uh, that's Advocate Anthea Gordon. And it was on these complaints that were made by the Public Protector, Advocate Mkwebade against, you know, the late Tina chumak as well as Chairperson of the 194 Inquiry, uh, Richard Chanji, and ANC Chief Group, Pemima Chodina. So the the matter, according to the committee, it, it, it's, it's ongoing and it's on the agenda of the committee, but these four members... Uh, which include Julius Malema of the EFF, uh, there's Violet Siwela and Mimi Konwe from the DA, as well as uh, Becky Zizo Ngosi and ANC MP, because uh, they also serve on this very inquiry committee that is probing Mkwebani's fitness to hold office. So there's, you know, mm. clearly a, a bit of an, you know, an ethical dilemma that it poses for all of them. And when you look at Malema, he has called for the chairperson of the inquiry, Richard Janji, for, for instance, you know, to also recuse himself, agreeing with Mkwebane, which, you know, does also kind of, you know, pose a bit of a conflict where he is concerned. So these four members have been recused themselves from the committee. Uh, The committee will continue with its investigations into these claims or allegations made by Mkwebane. It doesn't say in its statement that it will, um, you know, who will fill these four positions that have been, that have been left open now by these, by these recusals. But, you know, the committee insisting that it won't take any mm. you know, queries on the matter because it, it, it does operate behind closed doors. But the matter definitely being processed by the committee. But we'll just have to wait and see who these other four members who might replace these members that have recused themselves are, Mandy.
There's been this fine line that has been walked by the National Assembly Speaker, Nosibiwe Mapisa Nkakula. She called for Ubuntu earlier in the week. She doesn't really want to respond to Mkwebane's allegations at the briefing yesterday, saying that this would be fruitless and counterproductive. Uh, so do you still get a sense that they are trying to be sensitive to the family while still dealing with these allegations? Yes, indeed. I mean, the Speaker also quite makes it clear, I think, in her latest communication on the matter, she says, you know, um, you know, this that this could undermine, you know, the truth-seeking efforts of these institutions that are probing this matter. And it also shows a lack of sensitivity and respect to the bereaved family that's still coming to terms with the tragic passing of Gina Jumat Patterson. So there is that sense that there is a bit of a lack of sensitivity, you know, from the complainant in this matter, as well as, you know, the ongoing mudslinging in the media. And the speaker really is one can sense getting quite frustrated by what's been happening over the past couple of weeks, Mandy. Babalo, thank you very much. Uh, Babalo and Denze, EWN reporter, speaking to us there about the fact that four members of Parliament's Joint Ethics Committee have been recused from this probe into Busisiwe Mkwabane's bribery complaints. That includes Julius Malema, the DA's Mimi Gondwe, the ANC's Becky Zizwe Nkosi and Violet Siwela as well. They've been recused because they also serve on that Section 194 inquiry. And as we mentioned there, Nosiviwe Mapisa Nkakula calling for Ubuntu, not wanting to respond because uh, as a courtesy, a lack of sensitivity to the family of Tina Jumat-Peterson. Well, underway at the moment in the Northern Cape in Kimberley is a memorial service for Tina Jumat-Peterson. Let's listen in there because uh, Zamani Saul, the ANC's leader in the Northern Cape, also the Premier of the Northern Cape, is uh, speaking. He's just taken to the podium. Let's listen. Long live. Amanda. Forward to victory in 2024. Forward. Pata ANC Pata Forward to the Revolutionary Tripartite Alliance Forward Amanda Amanda Payadanke Program Director for the Galientheid Ladequak the Galientheid Gebrek on the Jumat and Peterson families the Groot and Fernams, Dinas, Tuesians, Terence, and Austin, and work the brother and sisters. Let the work program director the Lieutenant Gebrek, um, onze adjunct secretaris general te groot, comrade Nomvula Mokonyane, and work onze tweede. Atijang Secretaris General Ook de Groot Comrade Marupin Ramachop So vandag ons het al twee adjuncts hier En dat is baie welkom in ons mooie provincie van die Noordkap Ons het die mooiste provincie in die land Ons het die mooiste provincie in die land Dat leek voor mij alsof iele vergeet dat die Noordkap was de mooiste provincie in die land. Let me also take this opportunity to greet all members of the National Executive Committee who are here, members of the PEC, REC's, 
and we've got lots of our branch executive committee members who have just been newly elected. That's Zamani Saul, the leader of the ANC in the Northern Cape, uh, acknowledging the sons of Tina Jumat-Peterson and her siblings as well uh, at the memorial service where he is now speaking, that ANC-led memorial service. And of course, this is, it's awkward, it's complicated, it's uh, it's very nuanced, the fact that we are now seeing this memorial service with ANC leaders for Tina Jumat-Peterson when yesterday we had Busisiwe Mkwebane playing the audio of Tina Jumat-Peterson from the airport meetings with her husband and attempts at extortion and a bribe. It really is complicated. The Midday Report. So a really interesting story in Eyewitness News today. Oren Singh, EWN reporter, has gone to Frankfurt in the Free State and has had a look at this dilemma that is playing out there. So as I understand it, the community of Frankfurt have uh, invested, 21 shareholders have invested more than 100 million rand in the construction of a four-hectare solar power plant. The aim of the town is to generate their own electricity. But the problem now is that ESCOM says they can't store the power that's being generated, 3.8 megawatts, by the solar plant of the national grid because it could collapse the entire network. It really doesn't make a lot of sense. Oren Singh joining us uh, in, in studio. So, so Oren, take me through this. Why is ESCOM saying they can't store this power? I think that's the big question, Mandy. So there was a high court uh, matter that played out. Um, the community or the, the town of Frankfurt is under uh, the control of a company, private company by the call, uh, name of Rural Maintenance. And they were awarded a 25-year contract to run the electricity network for that town specifically, actually for the Mafube local municipality. And they've been doing that for the past decade. And what happened essentially, they entered into an agreement with these shareholders who said that, look, we, we want to start processing our own um, product in Frankfurt. Instead of exporting it out and having a process somewhere else, we want to process it here. So they looked at getting the solar plant up and running, which they invested money in, and they did that. And then only for Eskom to say that, look, you can't do this. But they were complying with all of the NOSA regulations that were in place. No one would invest 100 million rand in a solar plant without knowing that you can actually go ahead and do this. And we have the CEO of Rural Maintenance, Chris Bosch, who explains what's essentially happening here and what played out in the Gauteng High Court. Have a listen to this. If Eskom doesn't have enough electricity and we put new electricity on the grid, first of all, How does that weaken the network when we put new electricity on the grid? Just think about it for two moments. Think about what I'm now going to say to you. If in a thousand towns today, we start constructing four megawatts of solar, only four, that means we can have 4,000 megawatts on the grid within a year. And that's really being conservative. If we have 4,000 megawatts onto the grid, what is the effect of that on Eskom? It means Eskom reduces their, their supply. Not so, because if every little town where the town needs electricity, there's a solar plant, then it means we're freeing up capacity on the transmission system. If 4,000 megawatts goes alive on the grid today, where the electricity is being used, which means there's no impact on transmission, It just means that the load, it's as if during the daytime, we have a constant 4,000 megawatts load reduction. Is that going to crash the national grid? 
So, Oren, this matter went to court. This company took ESCOM to the Gauteng High Court last month over this dispute. What was the outcome of that and what's happening now? So, essentially what happened, uh, Mandy, rural maintenance lost on a technicality, if I could put it that way. The judge ruled that they did not have the support of the Mafube local municipality and therefore he couldn't really rule in their favor. He did agree with them though in terms of the manner in which they wanted to or get this this electricity out but essentially he ruled in favor of Eskom saying that um, because the local municipality was not supporting these 21 shareholders that they could not go ahead and rule in favor of their argument. So right now where things stand, this, uh, these shareholders are going to have to invest another 100 million rand to get uh, lithium-ion batteries so that they can store the 3.8 megawatts that are generated daily on the solar uh, plant and store it themselves and use it for the town of Frankfurt. Oren, thank you very much. Uh, Oren Singh in studio there speaking to us about this, uh, this interesting situation in the town of Frankfurt in the Free State. The Midday Report. The start of the show, I spoke about the flooding situation in the Western Cape. Heavy rainfall overnight. I've seen videos coming out of uh, Stellenbosch specifically, uh, where there's been quite a bit of flooding. Well, let's check in with Colin Diner, who's the Chief Director for Disaster Management in the Western Cape. Colin, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. What is the picture like? Are, are there areas of concern that are still being affected? Good afternoon, Mandy. Yeah, so we've had a couple of significant incidents uh, which started overnight and have gone into the morning. Uh, you just mentioned the the Drakenstein, uh, Stellenbosch area. So flooding downstream of the Wivemazuk Dam has been quite a problem for us today. In Somerset West, the Lawrence River bursted banks in some areas that impacting, impacted on the Somerset West Eskom substation, which uh, then impacted on some of our medical facilities. Um, then also in Cape Town, the Jakobsflake Canal burst its bank. So we had flooding in uh, the f- uh, food factory in Tokai and in informal settlements in Philippi Strand, Gugaletu, Mfalemi, Masapumalele and Kailicha have been flooded. So it's pretty much all over you know, the, the western part of the Western Cape. Has there been uh, any, any loss of life or uh, any efforts that have had to be made to, in order to ensure that, that no one does die? Yeah, thankfully, there's been no loss of life reported. Um, what we did do is last night, we did a lot of preparation. The South African Police Services divers were deployed. City of Cape Town Fire and Rescue Services, our district and, and municipal services. So the Sardar Search and Rescue came out. NSRI has been able to. So, so we've got a very big response capability that we've put together. And we, we've deployed them actually early this morning, just to areas where we felt there could be problems. But... Um, you know, up to now, thankfully, there haven't been any uh, any loss of life, or we we had to uh, to um, evacuate a a resort, but you know, it, it, it fortunately happened without too much further incident. And anything that you want uh, residents of the Western Cape to to be aware of, any areas they should avoid, or anything they need to do? Yeah, I think the most important thing is listen to the warnings. The warnings are, are fairly accurate. Um, we get good warnings from weather services, and there there have been warnings specifically for cold weather and, and for high waves and then also, again, wet weather uh, going into this long weekend. So, you know, listen to the warnings. And, and uh, again, you know, if you see a, a road that is flooded, don't try and cross it, even though it's shallow. It doesn't take much to lift the car and move it around. And then, you you know, it, it can create a tragedy. So uh, it's really just that uh, people should stay warm. And if they don't need to go out, don't go out. Um, it, it really is... Uh, really bad weather and we you know we need to to get as much assistance as we can to protect people
Colin, thank you so much. Uh, Colin Diner, Chief Director for Disaster Management in the Western Cape, uh, telling us which areas have been affected by that heavy flooding. Uh, he did also mention um, some knock-on effects there. I see also that Beverly van Rienen, who is the MMC for Energy in the city of Cape Town, tweeting that uh, the city of Cape Town is aware of an unplanned power outage affecting parts of Gordon's Bay, Strand, surrounding parts of the Helderberg area. The outage is as a result of flooding at Eskom's Lawrence River substation that feeds supply to the area and you can see the, the photograph of that substation being completely surrounded by water so lots of uh, of uh, incidents uh, in the western cape if you have experienced any of those send us a whatsapp voice note give us an update on what people should know about the midday report in the latest episode of Politricking with Tiddy Madia, Tiddy has spoken to Homeground Collective founder and CEO Mbalian Tuli, who is currently running a voters' drive. She's paired with a civic education campaign trying to get more people interested in the upcoming polls as well. Tiddy joining us to speak about this. Tiddy, good afternoon to you. Uh, Mbalian Tuli is really trying to get more people to vote. We've got a huge voter apathy situation in South Africa, particularly amongst young people. What has she said? to you about this? Good afternoon, Mandy. That's about it, really. You know, she speaks about how we're a country where people think you vote every five years and that means you participated in democracy, saying that from 1994, there were attempts to try and build up civic education, make people understand how to participate in the democracy, but that actually has fallen to the wayside along the way. I even questioned what happened with the IEC. It focuses so much on voter registration, not the entire picture. And Manitouli then saying it also has to do with funding, how much money is allocated to the IEC. So she's coming to that particular space and is trying to make a particular change more so at looking at young people and why is it that they don't participate. We had a brief conversation, Mandy, and we spoke about how young people in the country felt about the politics at the moment. And I think particularly for young people who are in a completely different generation, there's a huge disconnect from what we found, even from our research, but also anecdotally, that they just don't feel that the people who supposedly represent them actually understand them or care about them. And this is beyond even just bread and butter issues like, you know, how do people get jobs? This is also just in terms of socially, are these people moving with the times? Um, do they understand what young people in this country have to face? There's been so much that has happened uh, since many of the people in our parliament were considered young, um, that there's definitely a disconnect there. And this is putting young people off politics, off um, talking to young people, because there isn't much that they feel um is really there or anyone who speaks for them. And this is, I think, also an indictment on those of us who are young in politics, that we should have had the ability to push our political parties. And I mean, certainly some of us tried to be more representative of this community, to be more inclusive, to talk to them a lot more. But what you find very often across political parties that even young people in those political parties, as it stands, are being subsumed by the cultures of the older generation. And so I don't think they are speaking as much as they should about young people. And if you look even at the, the president's remarks in his sermon this year, or even in the finance thing, uh, the finance, um, the budget the speech, finance, yes. uh, ministers, budget speech, mm. sorry, that's a bit that's okay. Um, there was very scant amount of, uh, conversation around young people in particular. And so it's become this grouping that people talk about being important, but we're not really seeing that. That's Mbali and Tuli speaking to Tiri Madia on Politricking. You can go to ewn.co.za to listen to that uh, entire podcast.
The Midday Report. News yesterday that the National Assembly has passed the contentious National Health Insurance Bill, the NHI. It does pave the way for universal health care. There's been plenty of response to it. Uh, the bill has faced opposition from several parties, but it passed with 125 voting against the bill, 205 voting in favour of it. So it's now one step closer to actually being signed into law. There has been a lot of response to this. So let's get the response of the SA Medical Association, Dr Mvui. Yisi Mzukwa, chairperson of SAMA, joining us now. Dr. Mzuka, good afternoon to you. SAMA has been clear about the fact that it doesn't support the NHI bill in its current form. Uh, you have concerns about the provision of healthcare services to patients in the country. What are your concerns about the bill in its current form? Uh, good afternoon to you and to your listeners, and thanks for inviting me. Um, there are issues that you have raised. The first is the fact that there has been no proof of concept. In other words, you know, this uh, NHI has not been tested. I mean, you recall that there were what they called pilot projects uh, from 2012 until uh, 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, you know, those pilots never uh, gave any answers to the questions. Uh, for example, regarding the uh, reinvestment models. Uh, it was also um, a pilot, pilots in the state. The private sector was not piloted. So we don't know, you know how that would work in, in the private sector. But also you are talking about a system that will be uh, introducing change in terms of uh, uh, healthcare services being provided by provinces to a system where districts will be uh, providing a, a, a service. And also that has never been piloted. Uh, on top of that, it was the issue of, uh, um, you know, uh, if you're talking about um, uh, uh, providing equitable access, uh, then you must talk about equitable distribution of healthcare workers, you know, across the country, uh, urban versus rural areas, um, uh, private versus public. So those are the uh, dynamics that uh, uh, we're talking about to say, how do you implement mm. such a huge reform without talking to the numbers, you know, on the ground? You're telling us that you cannot employ doctors who are sitting home, nurses who are sitting home. You've got a dash shortage, you know. Uh, um, you, 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 you are sitting at 20, uh, in fact, 30% of the required uh, workforce in South Africa as per the recommendation by the World Health Organization. So mm-hmm. tell me then, how do you promise something like that to the nation uh, when you have not covered those basics on the ground? Doctor, is there a sense that that the passing of this bill in, in many ways, in the political climate, we're heading towards an, towards an election year, is more about appeasing the electorate and not necessarily looking at the, the, the real implications if you as medical professionals are saying that it's setting the healthcare system up for failure at the expense of the further deterioration of the health and well-being of all who live in the country, is this politics? This is our understanding, man. Uh, if you look at how this bill is being pushed down the throat of South Africans, it is done solely because there's 2024 elections next year. Otherwise, you know, people have nothing to show. They've uh, embezzled funds with the COVID-19, and now we want to trust these people with 500 to 700 billion rands. Uh, it's something that we cannot conceive as the Medical Association. 
um, we've raised this thing to say, if you are anticipating uh, doing that, why can't you establish a watchdog that is going to be looking after that fund instead of just, you know, uh, creating a fund and leave it and, and trust that people are not going to steal? Um, uh, uh, there's, there's many issues that we've raised, mm. uh, e- even the issue of um, uh, the appointment. I, I'm told now that the, the appointment of, of board members and the CEO of the fund has been accommodated by the 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 the, the, the bill. Right. But recently, the the health ombud has been talking about one of the important pillars in the healthcare system, that of uh, governance and leadership. Uh, where in our country employ uh, 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 people are incompetent in very strategic mm. positions as CEOs of hospitals, a very complex environment, and right. you set them up for failure. Dr. I'm afraid we have to leave it there. Dr. Mvuyisi Mzokwa, chairperson of the South African Medical Association, reacting there to the NHI. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.